If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The names Alberta King, Louise Little and Berdice Baldwin are now widely forgotten. But these remarkable women are worthy of our attention. The mothers of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and James Baldwin, respectively. They are the subject of Anna Malika Tubbs' debut book, Three Mothers. It shines a light on these neglected women and reveals how each lived an extraordinary life and taught their sons how to resist racism and fight for change. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, gave Anna a call to find out more. So in your book, Three Mothers, you talk about the lives of three women that a lot of our listeners might not know much about. So there's Alberta King, Louise Little and Burdis Baldwin. To start off with, can you briefly introduce us to these three women and tell us who their sons are? Definitely. So the mothers that you already mentioned are the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. And in their own right, even before they had their sons, before they met their husbands, they were 
incredibly talented, you know, educated, passionate young women who were already dedicating themselves to what they called, you know, this Black freedom movement, what they saw as this Black freedom movement happening, not only in the United States, but across the world. Um, So I'll say a little bit about each of them, just as a few teasers before people read the book. Alberta King was raised by two parents who deeply valued her education. Um, She was their only surviving child. They had two other children who passed away in childhood. And they started a church. Well, they founded um, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and they grew it from this population of only 17 people to what it really is today, this kind of foundation of the civil rights movement in Atlanta. And they based all of their teachings in faith as social justice, that you couldn't have faith without social justice, without meeting the needs of your members, without progressing, you know, this fight for our lives as a Black community. And so that's what Alberta is raised in. She believes that you have to voice, you know, your concerns about what's happening around you and happening to your people, um, but that you did so in somewhat of a disciplined way, that they they led boycotts. They were some of the first members of the NAACP in Atlanta. So all of the things that have to do with this nonviolent kind of path to civil rights and um, fighting for our rights and being brave while doing so in a way that isn't necessarily, you know, going to be considered radical or disrupting in the same way that maybe Malcolm X would be, um, really starts with Alberta and her parents, which I find to be really beautiful. The second story that I'll tell is about Louise Little, Malcolm X's mother, who was herself a radical um, Marcus Garvey follower, Pan-Africanist follower. Um, she was actually one of his closest confidants, and she wrote even for the Negro World, the newspaper that was, you know, disseminated, disseminated all over the place um, to talk about the needs of the Black community. She stood up against the Black Legion, the KKK, all of these hate groups, physically stood up against them um, alongside her husband. And so her children see her um, and witness this example of somebody that no matter what, however afraid you might feel or be, you stand up for yourself and you may lose your life in the process, but it's more important to not bow down to your oppressor, um, to disrupt things, do whatever you need to do for the, the sake of the freedom movement. And then again, of course, we see this direct connection with her son, Malcolm X, and there's direct connections with even the Nation of Islam and the Marcus Garvey movement. And then thirdly, Bertis Baldwin. Um, All three stories I absolutely love, but I find her story to be so beautiful because she was so humble. She came from a very modest background, this tiny place called Deal Island in Maryland, where um, she lost her mother at a really young age. Actually, in my research, I think that her mother passed away in childbirth, but um, it's not, I can't 100% say that's for sure, but her death certificate said she passed away from hemorrhaging. So Bertis comes into this world not really knowing her mother. Um, She latches onto her father in this tiny community um, that really has a lot of diversity, actually, because all of these people are coming to work on the water and make their living in these humble ways. And so she sees the world through this lens of I need to find hope no matter how painful my beginnings can be. I need to find light um, no matter how hard things can get. And I also can see that so many of us can come together despite racial differences, et cetera. Um, And she 
uses her own writing. So everybody who knew her said she was an incredible writer. Even the principals at James Baldwin schools talk about how she wrote these beautiful notes excusing his absences. I don't know how you make that a beautiful note, but the fact that somebody would say that that was worth talking about He inherited his talents directly from his mother of writing and making sure more people could come together and understanding. One of the things that James Baldwin was so amazing at doing was speaking to audiences around the world as this black man who was so just brilliant that people sat and listened to him, you know, in the 1960s beyond up until the 80s. And so... So much of that, again, was inherited directly from his mother and her creative spirit and her ability to see light no matter how dark situations could become. That's great. Thank you. So to focus on the upbringing of the mothers a little bit, they all grew up in early 1900s America and Granada. Can you paint a picture of what America and Granada was like at the turn of the 20th century? Absolutely. I think, and one thing I'll say even before I delve into their specific situations is that it makes it really clear, and I was trying to do this in the book, that even what we're seeing in our country today, it's a continuation of something so much larger that goes far beyond the civil rights movement, far, you know, um, back in history. I mean, I will also say that American history is all recent history. We have a very young country, you know, as compared to the UK um, as a prime example. So, even though I'm saying like it goes back further than we like to imagine, because so many times when we talk about black history, many people will say slavery and then we'll like skip directly to the civil rights movement and then talk about Black Lives Matter today. Um, But I was focusing on an era and I wanted to focus on an era that is so often ignored, which is right after Reconstruction, where there were so many black gains and then those were taken away very deliberately by these Jim Crow laws. So this is what Alberta and Burtis specifically are born into since they were born in the United States. Jim Crow laws reign supreme, you know, the separation between white and blacks, this lie about separate but equal. Um, Their schools are not going to be as well funded as their white counterparts. They are not going to have as many protections. They're going to hear stories constantly of people like them, children like them, um, women like them, being lynched, being raped, being hurt, um, simply for, you know, just trying to live their lives, even if they themselves weren't active um, in the same sense of, you know, like their parents were, um, or Alberta's parents were in in the civil rights movement, the early kind of, they call it the new Negro movement, etc. So that's really the, I set up a lot of those examples so that readers can understand that even if they themselves might not have faced those direct attacks, they were vulnerable to them. And Alberta and her parents lived through one of the most horrific moments in Atlanta's history, the Atlanta race riot, where white supremacists come through and start burning buildings and breaking windows and killing black people simply because there was this rise of a black middle class coming. Um, And so they they become enraged by this, um, as they often do with any progression for communities of color. And she lives to witness that she was only, I mean, she probably didn't remember it. She was only like three years old, but at the same time, that is directly connected to her life um, and the trauma that she even would have seen in her loved ones and felt, even if she wouldn't remember exactly the details of it. Then we have in Grenada, um, similar in terms of this kind of colonization and the effects of what happens when, again, 
your culture is inculcated with this white supremacist kind of colorist notion um, and this need in many ways to satisfy the colonizer um, and have your lives directly connected to those who are trying to oppress you and keep you um, from achieving basic human rights. Louise's parents and Louise's grandparents were also very aware of their need to be independent of their white counterparts. They wanted to own their own land. They wanted to make sure that they could you know, add to the teachings that Louise was receiving in school um, and make sure she knew about her history and her people. And her history involved Carib Indians. It involved West African people, liberated slaves. This, her grandparents themselves were liberated slaves. And so they were well aware of the need to educate her, but they were also aware of the dangers that their family um, faced day in and day out. And this part of my research was not clear because the historic record, many people have said this, many scholars have said that Malcolm X's mother, Louise, was the product of rape. Um, but the family members actually say that this was not real. He was speaking much more hyperbolically about the fact that there was white blood in him. So he's talking about a rapist's blood. And so it's, it's, it's contentious as to whether or not that actually happened. But the reality is that that was very possible and many black women in Louise's situation and her mother's situation did um, experience that kind of tragedy. So I still bring attention to that in the book um, while also acknowledging that that may not be the story that we've kind of accepted as historians and as scholars, um, but knowing that it's something that, that has happened to so many black women where their perpetrators did not face any consequences for their crimes. And another part of the book that you really highlight is the impact that education had on their lives, especially when they're growing up. Why was education so important for them? It's a great question. Education and so much of what I talk about in the book is this understanding of how much comes from a country that's built on slavery and how that translates into everything we experience as Black Americans beyond that. Um, and I mean, you know, outside of the U.S. again, Louise was not born in the United States. She later comes to the United States and would consider herself a part of this black community. However, colonization, enslavement, all of these things said that black people were not worthy of education. They should not be educated because if they were, they would revolt. Um, but that as the quote unquote animals that we were, why should we be educated? Why should we be able to think for ourselves? Um, it was all a part of controlling our every move and our ability to stand up for ourselves, to communicate with one another, etc. So that strategy really translated in so many ways beyond that. Even you know when slavery is deemed illegal, then you have Black people forced to work on plantations. Um, children are working throughout the year, not allowed to go to school. So it takes quite a lot of effort for families to make sure their children will be educated, especially young women. So part of the fact that these three families, you know, we see the three sons later, how revolutionary they are for the world. It starts way back with their own grandparents and great grandparents saying, these are values that our family has. These are things that we believe will contribute to the freedom of our people our children, our daughters need to be educated. And in all three of these cases, the women were very well educated, um, really brilliant minds. 
again, everyone who knew them, their living family members and friends who were willing to speak to me all spoke to the fact that they were so brilliant and they spoke brilliantly and they communicated brilliantly. And even, you know, if we compare them to their husbands and their partners who are spoken about more often, um, you know, audience members might not know their names all that well either. But if you do know about the men, you most likely know more about their fathers and about their mothers. In all three cases, the mothers were much better educated than their fathers because, again, it was so difficult for Black people to gain that kind of education. And it really had to do with their own parents advocating for their daughters to, to have those opportunities. In your last answer, you touch on Malcolm, Martin and James's fathers. And this is also quite a crucial part of the book, which you look at through the lens of the mothers and how it shapes their relationships with their partners. Can you introduce us to the three men and talk through some of the similarities and the differences that they have? Absolutely. The three men, I think in so many ways, they further highlight the strengths and the uh, passions of the women and the women's abilities to, you know, continue to persist and to challenge those around them and support those around them. Um, the marriages that they all three participated in that were very different from one another um, definitely highlight more about who these these women were individually. I will say that I'll just go individually through each man. I think that might be the easiest way to do it. <laughs> so. We'll start with um, Alberta King's husband, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., perhaps the most famous of the three fathers as well, because uh, so many people talk about Martin Luther King Jr. inheriting a lot of what he knew and did from his father, which, again, hopefully this book will correct some of that record. I'm not trying to erase the father by any means. He was an incredible man, and he also did incredible things for our country. However, without his wife, he himself would not have been able to do what he did. And even in his own autobiography, um, he speaks to how important his wife was. It's really a love letter to his wife. It's a beautiful book. Um, again, from all the interviews I did and from everything I was able to read, he was just over over his heels in love with Alberta King. And when he met her, he himself was considered illiterate. They're around the same age, but again, because we talked about in the last answer how difficult it was to receive an education if you didn't come from means like Alberta's family did. Um, when he met her, she's this revered, you know, daughter of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. She already has a college degree. She's on her way to becoming a teacher. And he's this kind of country boy who is wanting to become a Baptist preacher, um, training to become that, but who definitely doesn't, you know, speak with the same level of, um, I guess, again, education as Alberta did. And she still falls in love with him. She still is very, you know, honored by his attention. But she says to him, in order for us to be together and in order for you to move forward, you need to be educated. And she challenges him and she says, like, you need to get a college degree. Um, because her father had been to Morehouse and this whole tradition that we talk about with MLK going to Morehouse and the women in the family going to Spelman. Again, all of that is from Alberta's side of the family that has nothing to do with, with Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. And so they get him into Morehouse and Alberta tutors him through his education. So it's, it's, it's amazing. And when her father passes away, that's why he inherits Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's not because of his own doing. It's because of Alberta. When they get married, he moves into their home. You know, we so much more often 
think about the wife joining the husband's family traditionally. And in this case, because they came from more means, um, Alberta was better educated. They had much more opportunity in her family. He moves into their home, uh, which is just really, it's significant and proves, again, that whole family really can't do anything without Alberta. So her husband acknowledged that it's time the rest of the world does too. Um, in terms of Earl Little, he was also a radical activist. Um, he was from the South. I should say all three men were from the Deep South. They'd experienced terrible violence from a young age. All of them had witnessed lynchings firsthand, whether that was even their own family members, their own brothers who had been killed, etc. Um, and they all are looking for something better. They want to move on. They want to, again, join the fight just like their wives did. And so Earl Little finds himself in Montreal, Canada. It's the same place where Louise finds herself after she leaves Grenada. And they're at a Marcus Garvey meeting where they're talking about the Garveyist movement and how they're going to organize more people in the United States around it. And they fall in love. And Earl himself, as much as I can find, is that he was much more fiery. You know, um, MLK Sr. was, again, very so in love. He was a little more fiery than Alberta, but also very willing to listen to her. With Earl, they seemed to have some more clashes because of how they were both so confident and so um, brave in their approach. But my understanding is that she stood up to him quite well, and even in her own marriage, again, which is consistent with what I was saying earlier, she wouldn't back down. And um, there's a lot more that happens. I don't want to give too much away, but he experiences some terrible tragedy that then leads to Malcolm X being even more radical um, when his father is assassinated. And then finally, we can go to Burtis Baldwin and her her um, second lover. I'm not, I'm not really sure. We don't know much about her first since um, she never really spoke about who James Baldwin's father was. And he himself didn't know him. So his stepfather has much more of this um, influence on his life. Not a great one necessarily because he was quite abusive. Um, from all of the pain he had witnessed in his home, own life, he didn't really see much hope. Instead, he was very angry at his condition as a black man in the United States. And unfortunately, over time, he also developed some mental illness. Um, I couldn't find any record of what exactly he was diagnosed with when he finally was taken to a hospital, but um, I would imagine maybe something like dementia or uh, maybe even schizophrenia. He started to accuse everybody around them of wanting to steal from him. Um, he didn't want anybody to feed him. He thought he was going to be poisoned. Um, and even before these symptoms worsen, he's very abusive towards his wife and his children. And James Baldwin talks about that quite a lot, that he sort of hated his stepfather. Um, and Burtis constantly reminds James to still forgive him, to love him, going back to her kind of consistent thread of love and light no matter what. And yeah, they, they have nine children together um, before he passes away. And like I said, when I started this, this answer, it just really illustrates Burtis's compassion. She forces her son before her husband passes away to go and forgive him before he dies. Um, at, no matter what this man has done to her for so many years of her life, she still says, son, for your own well-being, you need to find love and forgiveness and go and speak with him. And I mean, it's his mom. He listens to everything she tells him to do. So he does it. 
And he writes about that really powerfully as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We've gotten so used to telling the story so many times that we speak about their assassinations just as like almost an unavoidable part of history in many ways. We forget that they were sons, that they were loved, that they were brothers, that these were heart-wrenching moments that were unnecessary. They didn't have to die. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So looking at the mothers again, what were their approaches to motherhood like? and What ways were they similar and how were they different? I love the ways in which they're so different from each other. That was one of my favorite parts of writing the book and why I ended up choosing these three in particular, because they show the beautiful nuances of the Black community. So often as Black women, we're put in these categories um, and everyone's really trying to reduce us in so many ways. And um, the three of them just illustrate the many differences. And there's so much beyond the three of them, so many other identities that aren't necessarily included, but it gives us a good understanding of, of how incredibly rich and diverse our diaspora is. In terms of their mothering approaches, it's, you know, the same following that that thread of different approaches. <laughs> so Alberta King was very, from my understanding, especially what probably the source that helped me the most with this is her daughter's 
autobiography um, where she talks about her mom being very disciplined. You know, they had a very specific routine the children did. They would go to school, they'd come back, they'd do their chores, they'd sit down, do their homework, they'd all sit down for a family meal. Every weekend they were at church. So everything was like planned out for them. Um, They knew from the beginning they all needed to get their educations and, you know, kind of pay attention. Um, But she also had a really deep understanding of the differences between all three of her children. She was constantly helping her husband understand, which I think a lot of moms in these heteronormal relationships can relate to. It's part of like, you know, I can't go, I don't want to go too deep into theory, but that a lot of men have not been trained in the same way to understand the feelings and emotions of their children. And so um, even Martin Luther King Sr. spoke about how she just had this really deep understanding. And when he was confused about any of his kids, she could sit down and tell him why they were feeling what they were feeling. And Um, that kind of relationship that she has with each of them carries through their adulthood where they're always calling their mom and writing her letters and, you know, ask, giving her updates and then asking her to send them things that they like, um, even her cooking. And there's a little part that I include that's in the, um, autobiography of, uh, MLK Jr. where he asks his mom to like send him chicken and rolls and bread and shoes. And it's just really cute um, to see that relationship that he's just this little boy and that's his mom, which um, I absolutely love. So she has this combination of both love, but also discipline and letting them know what she expects of them and their futures and making them aware of the world that they find themselves in, even though they were perhaps a little bit more protected because they have the church behind them. They're well-educated. They have means. They're not super rich by any means, um, but they had a lot more than Black families did at the time. And she makes sure that they're aware that that is no reason to just settle. It's no reason to just be comfortable, that they needed to also be a part of the movement. And she even shows that through her own example by joining um, the NAACP and you know, making sure she starts this um, women's branch of the church where we talk about women in organizing. Uh, She was very active and wanted to showcase that in her own example. So I'll move on. I can go on and on about each and every one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Louise Little, her approach was, you know, she was very lead by example, but also you're not going to like, you know, be rebels against me, which I think was kind of funny. (laughs) She was like, let's be rebels in the world, but also listen to me. And I have these rules in place. And she, again, was very disciplined. She wanted to make sure they, when they came back from school, she would sit them down and she'd reteach them anything that their teachers had told them that she found to be problematic. Um, She wanted them to know about things that were happening all over the world. So she had newspaper clippings that she would place in front of them um, from newspapers from Grenada and newspapers from the United States as well as from Canada. And they would read them out loud. And if they didn't know any of the words, she would stop them. She'd pull out a dictionary make sure that they read what the word was go back and reread the article. And so this is what they did when they got back from school. They would sit and read newspaper articles in the kitchen while she cooked. um, And she would just educate them even further. And her eldest son, in one of his speeches, talked about how this allowed him to be really proud of who he was, that he never had a feeling that because he was Black, he was inferior to anybody else. And he credits his mother teaching them in this way where she approached them like, you are these brilliant minds. 
I'm going to make sure you know that. I'm going to make sure you know that you're a part of a history that's beyond what's happening in this country and beyond what you're going to hear in this country so that whatever you face out here, outside of our house, you know it might not necessarily be the truth and you're going to have to help others see what you already know about yourself and your worth and your dignity. So she teaches them both by example, but also by these lessons. Um, And I guess her and Malcolm X kind of butted heads a lot because he was a little rebel just like her. And he was kind of more so like, well, mom, you like challenge these rules, so I'm going to challenge your rules, (laughs) which I think was quite funny. He thought that she treated him differently because he was light-skinned like she was and that she didn't want him to have this kind of color superiority complex. Um, But based off of what I've read between him and his brother, he also just was more of a rebel and broke rules more often. (laughs) So again, we get to know the, the sons in this really human way. They're not just these like famous figures. They're these kids who, who liked to rebel against their parents' rules. And then finally with James Baldwin, Burtis, Again, this consistency of just wrapping her children in her love and supporting them in what they wanted to do, that they all were very creative. They were artists and writers, and all nine of them had these different passions that their step, their father, um, James Baldwin's stepfather, didn't really support. He wanted them all to be you know, followers of God. He wanted them all to be in ministry. Um, And he kind of felt that all these other things were the work of the devil. And even when James Baldwin is invited to see his first play by a teacher, David Baldwin stands up and says, I don't want him to do this. Um, And Burtis puts herself um, in between her husband and James and this teacher and says, he's going to do this. He deserves to have these opportunities, which we can only imagine what she had to face as a result of that bravery on behalf of her children. But she was very clear that nothing was going to get in her children's way of success and following what they cared most deeply about. So there's actually an interview clip where she's sitting in her kitchen and one of the reporters says, did you know that he was going to be famous? And she was very blunt. She just goes, no, but I knew he needed to write. And then that's all she says. (laughs) So yeah, she did everything she could just to show him her love and she embraced all of his friends and all of his partners and everybody who he he cared about, he brought to meet his mother or he wrote a letter about them to her. And it just translates even beyond their childhood years. That's lovely. It was so nice reading about how close all the sons were with their mothers. I really enjoyed that. It's really sweet. <laughs> so sweet, isn't it? So when they became really big figures in the civil rights movement, How did the mothers react? Because Alberta wasn't totally happy about it, was she? Yeah, I think it also reminds us again that these three figures who, I mean, it more so happens with Malcolm X and MLK that we just think about them as these kind of unicorn figures who maybe weren't really human themselves, you know, and we take away from their humanity by doing this um, because we don't think about how painful it was day in and day out for them to do everything that they did. Um, Same with James Baldwin. He's just a little bit less famous, so people don't consider the amount of courage it took for him to stand up in front of these audiences and speak um, so bravely and so Uh, directly about what he was witnessing. Um, And so when we hear about it from the perspective of the moms and learning even from the moment that they gave birth to these sons and their other children, um, we better understand why you're going to be really afraid that your kiddo and even their grown men or teenagers, I mean, they were all really young when they joined the movement. That's the other thing. They were, you know, in their 20s when they're leading these crazy 
you know, demonstrations that are just so revolutionary and and beautiful. Um, they're very young. And so all of the moms worried about their kids. And especially Alberta, there's just maybe more documentation of her worry. Uh, I would imagine all three of them were quite anxious about it. Uh, but we see in, in many letters, um, we see it in uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr.'s book. We see it even in MLK's writings that his mother um, was almost sick because of how worried she was that something was going to happen to her son. Uh, But at the same time, she also knew she was going to support him. So I find her balance between being both vulnerable and willing to say, this is really hard for me and I worry and so much so that I like the doctor thinks I need to just stay in bed for a few days. Um, but also saying, I support you and I won't stand in your way. And I see that God has a plan for your life is very human. And it allows us to see her as the human being that she is as well. So yeah, she was worried, but supportive (laughs) and she helped him with a lot of it. You know, she was also seeing how he was completing not only the work that she did, but the work that her parents, um, began as well. With Louise Little, it's not super clear. We didn't have much documentation on her life for 25 years because she was put in an institution against her will um, that she fully saw as a form of incarceration for being outspoken, for being a single woman who wanted to own her own land and take care of her children without the invasion of welfare workers. Um, And eventually she's put in an institution for 25 years of her life. And this is when Malcolm X is really, I mean, he goes through his time as Detroit Red, um, then is in prison, then goes through reformatory programs and then joins the Nation of Islam. But even through that, he credits his mom. There are letters that I include in the book where he talks about his mom being his first introduction to Islam and how she was trying to teach him this all along. And he credits her for that kind of resistance and what um, she she raised him with. So we're not sure how Louise felt because we don't have any record of her own time there. The only record we have is from white male doctors going back and forth with each other about how she was resistant. And it's, it's really um, tragic and heartbreaking. Um, but I imagine that both she as well as Alberta were nervous, but proud what their children were doing uh, to complete the lessons that they had raised them with. And then Burtis, it was it was interesting. It seems like from her letters, she was more concerned with James Baldwin smoking and drinking <laughs> um, and cussing sometimes than she was with him being a part of the movement. She does speak to at some point, um, I can't remember which source I got this from, but when he comes back to the States from his first trip to Paris and he's actually going to the South to interview Martin Luther King Sr. or Jr., Um, that she's worried because of what he's about to face because she's been in the States. She's seen everything that's happening um, while he's been away in Paris for almost a decade, if not beyond that. And there is some mention that she, you know, she was a little anxious about what was going to happen there. Uh, But out of the three, surprisingly, even though Burtis and James are so close, there wasn't as much record of her fear for his life. But also he had direct, not as many direct threats as the other two did. It was so clear that so many people hated Malcolm X and MLK Jr. in a way that maybe as a writer, James Baldwin was able to avoid, potentially. So obviously it 
became clear that they did have some reasons to be worried, particularly Alberta and Louise, as Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated. So as all three mothers had to bury their sons, how did they cope with this loss? It's heartbreaking. And I mean, I sound like a broken record, but when we know their mother's stories and we know their family's stories, we also feel the pain of losing these men even more. I mean, if you were alive during that time when they were assassinated, you would have felt it and that kind of, you know, like pain that those who loved them felt. But I think when we hear about it later, we've gotten so used to telling the story so many times that we speak about their assassinations just as like almost an unavoidable part of history in many ways. We forget that they were sons, that they were loved, that they were brothers, that these were heart-wrenching moments that were unnecessary. They didn't have to die. Um, and just how tragic that that feels. And so in terms of the mothers coping with it, um, everybody who wrote about it with Alberta King said that she was incredibly strong, that she became much more concerned with taking care of everyone around her, which I think is very um, – I, I mean, it's something that's very – I admire that about her, but at the same time, unfortunately, that's just so often what Black mothers have to do is be strong for everybody around them. And as people honored her for it, I also think really about how hard that must have been. Um, but she felt she needed to be there for her grandchildren, especially those that now no longer had their father. And what adds to the tragedy is that only a year and a half later, or not even a whole year and a half, she loses her second son. Um, and he passes away also mysteriously drowning in his pool, even though he was a great swimmer. And so she also doesn't have answers to what happened to her children. This is really a moment where her faith brings her through because she doesn't necessarily have to understand what's happening. She just knows that it's part of God's plan and there was more left in her life to live and she had grandchildren to take care of and a community to take care of and her husband to support. Uh, but everybody just spoke about how strong she was. So it would have been nice to know from her personally if she had written any letters about this, because I think there was probably more to it um, beyond her strength. There was deep reflection and also probably deep pain. Uh, but she found a way. She found a way to keep going forward each and every day. Um, when it comes to Louise Little, the tragedies really just continued. She had just been released a year before uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. So she saw him again after she was released, is proud of everything he's doing for the world. Um, I can only imagine that feeling. You have been separated from your children for 25 years, and then they help to finally get you released after, again, years of trying for that. You have one year where your son is not even really with you every day. He's traveling still with the movement, but he's going through one of the hardest years of his life as he's leaving the Nation of Islam. And then you find out that he is assassinated um, only maybe, I think, a couple, maybe 12 months after she was released. So heartbreaking as well. But she doesn't really speak publicly after she's released from the institution um, her activism becomes much more inward and she just talks to her grandchildren and her family, um, but she doesn't ever speak publicly again. So we have no idea what her personal 
reactions were to that. Um, and his family wasn't at his funeral. Um, I think they must have had their own celebration of him, but they didn't go to um, the, the kind of more public funeral. And then Burtis has more time with James, at least. You know, he lives a longer life um, until he passes away from stomach cancer. Um, but he spends a lot of his time outside of the country again, especially after what he says his two friends, Malcolm, well, three friends, Malcolm, uh, Martin, and Medgar Evers are killed. He starts to have even more kind of righteous anger and um, spends more time out of the States writing from a distance. Um, so he's away from Burtis in a lot of his final years. He comes back and forth and goes to Harlem and introduces her to friends and artists in his community, et cetera. But um, in his final, final years, he passed away in Paris. And um, I can imagine how, how awful that was for her. I think she maybe was hoping to avoid burying, and again, in her case, two of her sons pass away before she does. Um, but there is some kind of consolation that she sees their work and all three of the mothers saw their son's works continuing beyond their lives that they kind of they live on and they continue to live on in our lives today and I guess with this book I'm also saying that the mother's lives are are living on as well beyond their time on earth definitely that's something I was wondering about for us today what lessons do you think we can take from Alberta Louise and Burdus there's a lot of different ways I could answer that because there's things we can learn you know if you're a mother who wants to think about how to raise your children in a way that they are aware of what's happening in the world. You know, we definitely have instruction on that in the book. Um, if you are like a community activist and you don't have children, but you care deeply about helping the people around you um, to better understand, again, what's going on and how they can participate and all of these things, we have instruction for all of that. Um, if you're a writer, if you're a, you know, movement leader, if you're a singer in your church, like we even get those identities represented. And no matter where you're from, small town, you know, big city, um, the South, outside of the United States, if you're all of these different identities, we can definitely gain instruction from each of their um, lives. But I think beyond even knowing their stories, it's about thinking about what are Black women facing today? What are the issues that are still in our way that are keeping us from living our lives fully because we're still not being treated as human beings. You have right now this maternal health crisis in the United States with very high levels of black maternal mortality that no matter our access to education, no matter um, our differing socioeconomic statuses, if you're a black woman in the United States, you're more likely to pass away in pregnancy and in childbirth, and you're more likely to lose your child. Um, and again, it goes back to these notions of what even the American gynecological system was built upon which was experimenting on the bodies of enslaved women as if we were animals, as if we couldn't um, voice our levels of pain, that we didn't feel pain in the same way as other human beings did. And today we have so many cases where Black women say something's wrong, something's happening, and they're not heard, they're not listened to, and they pass away um, from hemorrhaging and very similar to, to Brodus Baldwin's mother. So I really hope readers take a moment to think about what are all these things that we could avoid and change, um, not only in the United States, but beyond, to make life easier for Black women who for so many years have 
carried the country forward, have pushed the country to see the world through their eyes where all of our humanity and our worth and dignity can be recognized. What can we do to make life easier? Is that a guaranteed income? Is that universal preschool for our children? Is that finally coming up with better gun laws where not everybody has access to these weapons of mass destruction in many ways? And that's what I want people to gain. Their lives are so incredibly important for history, but their losses were avoidable, just like the losses of Black children and people today are avoidable. And we can address things like mass incarceration, police violence. Um, not only can we, but we must. That was Anna Malika Tubbs. Her book, Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation, is available in bookstores and online now, published in the UK by HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear Hugh Wilmot on the disillusion of the monasteries. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.